Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. Today, Trump's motion to get rid of Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis has been unanimously dismissed by the Georgia Supreme Court. A federal judge has blocked the Iowa six-week abortion ban. Assistant Attorney General Ken Polite is leaving the Justice Department. Harlan Crow's yacht trips are raising tax scam questions. And Carrie Kennedy rebukes her brother's anti-Semitic COVID remarks. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hey, Dana. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday to you, my dear friends. Thank you. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm in Grand Rapids. It's so, it's Ooh. very clean. I feel like I need to take a shower so I can be as clean as Grand Rapids is. It's very clean here. <laughs> That's the lovely thing. It's um very it's very kind of Stepfordy. It's going to be interesting. Uh, I think I'm, I think we're going to have a wonderful time though. I know our patrons we're having a meet and greet this Friday, um, and so if you are a patron, you can check your inbox for details on that. Please RSVP. And um, also later in the show today, I I had a thirty minute talk with Miles Taylor, absolutely incredible human person, and he's got a new book out. It's called Blowback. 
nice. It's available today. It comes out today. And we got him. Um, he's former chief of staff for the Department of Homeland Security under Donald. Of course you got him. He was the anonymous author of, of the book, A Warning. Ah. He also wrote that anonymous op-ed that mentioned the word lodestar. And we were all trying to figure out who is it that uses the word lodestar. It, it was Miles Taylor. And he's here today. And we have a really in-depth, great conversation. Super vulnerable guy. He's just, it's a really wonderful conversation. I think you're going to really, really like it. And also he has a podcast called Whistleblowers uh, about whistleblowers and and it's got <laughs> about whistleblowers. And uh, he like <laughs> does a great in-depth interview with uh, Andy McCabe. So nice. you should definitely check out his podcast as well. And also today, um, pretty recent breaking news here, late breaking news. At the end of the day, Trump filed that bullshit motion to get Fonnie Willis removed and to have the special purpose grand jury report thrown out. And the, the Georgia Supreme Court just laughed him out of the courtroom. They're like, we have no, you have no power here. Be gone before someone drops a house on you. Good, just a little, be gone. Yes. So um, it was a, a pretty, a pretty uh, succinct shutdown. And we will discuss it on tomorrow's episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45 in more detail. We're going to read some quotes from this pretty great ruling from the Georgia Supreme Court. All right. With all that out of the way, uh, we have a lot of news to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. First up from the Wall Street Journal. Earlier this year, federal prosecutors in Washington made innovative use of securities market data to bring a first of its kind insider trading case. Now they're looking to expand their data analytics capabilities, including by using suspicious activity reports or SARS, S-A-R, SARS filed by banks to hunt for overseas bribery. Uh, This is the latest push by the Justice Department to broaden the types of data it can sift through to look for crime, (laughs) look for corporate crime. And it was overseen by Assistant Attorney General Ken Polite, Hmm. who is preparing to step down from his position as head of the department's criminal division by the end of July. After a short break, he plans to join a law firm later this summer. As a criminal division chief, the 47-year-old supervised a diverse portfolio of matters from investigations into gang activity and cybercrimes to the prosecution of companies and their executives for fraud and market manipulation, too. Underlying much of the work was an effort keeping up with changing times. A lot of that was part of the job, right? Quote, you're seeing an increased focus on emerging technology broadly. Polite said he compared the Justice Department's data analytics efforts to how the department last year set up a national task force to centralize expertise and coordinate investigations involving crypto, an area of heightened activity for prosecutors following the collapse of crypto exchange FTX. The Justice Department has kept its data analytics work largely out of the spotlight, but its recent successes, as well as references to the program made by department officials and legal conferences, have begun attracting the attention of lawyers and criminal justice experts. So after using such techniques for years to combat healthcare fraud, for example, the division's fraud section began applying them to markets-related misconduct. And the Justice Department made its latest breakthrough earlier this year when it announced insider trading charges against the former CEO of telehealth provider on track. His name is Taryn Pizer. The case was the first time the DOJ had criminally charged an executive for allegedly abusing a type of prearranged trading arrangement known as a 10B51 plan. Now, while regulators have long known about the potential for exploiting loopholes in such plans to commit insider trading, making such a case is notoriously difficult. 
To make the Pizer case, officials acknowledged federal prosecutors in Polite's division turned to their budding data analytics capabilities. The SEC, which brought a parallel civil claim against Pizer, had said it also brought its own data analytics capabilities to bear. And Pizer has denied the agency's allegations, of course. But the Justice Department's recent use of data analytics is a sea change for how such techniques have traditionally been used in criminal cases. Where data was applied in the past to build a case once it had already been identified, the goal of the department's more recent efforts has been to find cases where patterns in the data warrant further investigation. So they're using the data to find the criminals, not prosecute them. I mean, eventually they use it to prosecute them, but this is fascinating. It is. He says, what the data shows us, it allows us to do, is identify those aberrant trends which are indicative of criminal activity. We can't look at everyone, but we can use that data to identify where we should be looking. So, Thank you. Thank you, AG. Yeah. All right. Harlan Crow. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that good old boy. Called him a, yep. we called him a yacht Nazi on Twitter earlier. Oh, and I was yeah. like, is that a Yahtzee? There so. you go. Yahtzee. Harlan Crow's lavish gifts to who? Clarence Thomas. Well, they have shined an unflattering light on the Supreme Court justice's disregard for ethics and judicial integrity. That, and a, I can think of a flurry of other things. But now <laughs> they are also beginning to fuel scrutiny around Crow himself. They're raising questions about the billionaire GOP donors' tax practices. Shocking. Now, according to ProPublica, whose reports on the Crow-Thomas relationship this year, they have intensified calls for Supreme Court reform, while the real estate developer may have used his yacht trips with Thomas to lower his own tax bill, a possible violation of tax laws. This is what experts are telling the outlet. And this is a quote from the story. Based on what information is available, this has the look of a textbook billionaire tax scam. That, of course, is from Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden. That's what he told ProPublica and went on to say these new details only raise more questions about Mr. Crow's tax practices, which could begin to explain why he's been stonewalling the Finance Committee's investigation for months. Yeah, and Wyden is one of several Democrats looking into Crow's gifts to Thomas, by the way. And of course, Crow declined to comment on all of this entire story. And he and Thomas have, have each previously denied any wrongdoing among this entire scandal, by the way. Right. So Crow who has insisted that lawmakers do not have authority to investigate the gifts, uh, reportedly slashed his tax bill by deducting losses from Rochelle Charter, his company that charters the yacht on which he hosted Thomas. But ProPublica reports, it does not appear that Crow actually chartered the yacht. Now, use of the vessel, the Michaela Rose is what the vessel's called, was instead apparently, and I quote, limited to Crow's family, friends, and executives of Crow's company, along with their guests. That's according to the outlet. Now, Michael Bob, Michael's an attorney representing Harlan. Now, he argued in a June 2nd letter to Wyden that trips involving the Thomases, those were paid to the Crow family entities holding or operating those assets. Now, Crow, in other words, claims he was paying his family company for the use of the yacht. But Brian Gow, I would assume it's Gow, it may be Gaillet, Brian Gaillet, could be French or Spanish. A former federal tax crimes prosecutor, Brian, is told ProPublica that the purported arrangement was completely absurd and should be aggressively audited. So Brian's <laughs> like, go after these fuckers. Now, the new revelations about Crow, and Crow is a big donor to Ron DeSantis, by the way. He came as Senate Democrats prepared to forge ahead with Supreme Court reform. Now, on Thursday, Dick Durbin and the Senate Judiciary Committee, they're expected to consider ethics and transparency legislation 
put forth by Sheldon Whitehouse, who we all love because he's trying to get rid of dark money in the Supreme Court. And as we know, he's one of the leading critics of SCOTUS. Though it's likely to pass, Senate Republicans are expected to rally against the bill, which will surely be dead on arrival in the GOP's held house. Still, as White House told, and this is Sheldon, by the way, as Sheldon Whitehouse told the New York Times, it could mark the beginning of the foundation of actual bipartisan action. He said, you have to start somewhere. The, the more information that comes out and about the mischief going on in the Supreme Court, the more inevitable it becomes that they come around to agreeing we have to do something. So, I mean, listen, hopefully one day in our lifetime, we'll get the court back. Yep. And you got to start somewhere. He's absolutely right. Exactly. All right. Next up, Carrie Kennedy, sister of Democratic presidential candidate. I can't Democratic sure. should be in quotes in this story. <laughs> it is not. RFK Jr., uh, Kerry Lambassador brother in a brief statement Monday after a report quoted him as saying that COVID-19 was targeted to attack Caucasians and black people and that Jewish people are the most immune. Quote, I strongly condemn my brother's deplorable and untruthful remarks last week about COVID being engineered for ethnic targeting. That's Kerry Kennedy in a statement released from the nonprofit group Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, where she is president. His statements do not represent what I believe or what Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights stands for. With our 50-plus year track record of protecting rights and standing against racism and all forms of discrimination. Now, on Saturday, the New York Post published an article that included a video that appeared to show Robert Kennedy speaking at a dinner in Manhattan about bioweapons and ethnically targeted microbes in which he claimed that COVID-19 attacks on certain races disproportionately, right? That's what he's claiming in this video. It's him. And it's abs- it's actually pretty absurd. Yeah, it's absurd. And it's ext- extremely upsetting and very anti-Semitic. Yes, because you have to take you, have, you know, you have to take it a step further. Right. To, to say that Caucasians and Jewish people, mo- Jewish people, are the most immune to COVID-19. Then you are saying China has manufactured a bioweapon to. To target or to, you know, to, to literally to own, help the Jews to, in right, some way. Preserve the Jew, And like, it's just the weirdest and most anti-Semitic and dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. He said, COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese, he said, according to the video. We don't know whether it was deliberately targeted that like that or not. Now, an overwhelming proportion of American Jews are Ashkenazi Jews who are descended from Jews who lived in Central and Eastern Europe. NBC has not verified the video. In a statement to Twitter later in that day, Kennedy defended his remarks and he actually said that they were not anti-Semitic. So former Rep. Joe Kennedy III, Democrat from Massachusetts, also weighed in Monday that he condemns his uncle's remarks. Robert Kennedy has been repeatedly criticized for pushing conspiracy theories, some about vaccines. He wanted to debate Peter Hotez, Dr. Hotez. Yeah, that was a mess. Joe Rogan's podcast. Carrie Kennedy, who's 63, blasted her brother, who is 69, uh, when he launched his presidential bid in April, too. She She blasted him then. I love my brother, Bobby, but I do not share or endorse his opinions on many issues, including the COVID pandemic, vaccinations, and the role of social media platforms in policing false information. That's what she said at the time when he announced his candidacy back in April. She also said, it's also important to note that Bobby's views are not reflected in or influence the mission of the work of our organization. 
Other members of the family have also rebuked him over the conspiracy theories about vaccines and misinformation that he's been spreading for years. This isn't new. At the White House, Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre denounced the remarks. Quote, the claims made on tape are false. It's vile, she said. They put our fellow Americans in danger. If you think about the racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that come out of saying those types of things, it's an attack on our fellow citizens, our fellow Americans. So it's important that we speak out. Thank you so much, A.G. And it's amazing how one person in a family, and there might be more, but he is definitely one person in what seems to historically been a very sane and democratic family, uh, seems to have gone off the the deep end a little bit there. Um, This is from KCRG in Des Moines on Monday. A judge placed a temporary injunction on the newly signed bill that would restrict abortion after roughly six weeks gestation or whenever cardiac activity is detected. Now, in their ruling, the judge stated that the court must follow the Iowa Supreme Court precedent and preserve the status quo while litigation moves forward. The judge did, however, direct the Iowa Board of Medicine to adopt rulemaking under the bill's new guidelines. Now, the injunction would last until a future court decision. Governor Kim Reynolds. Kim Reynolds signed what supporters called the fetus heartbeat bill into law Friday as Planned Parenthood and other petitioners were in court trying to stop the law from taking effect. The Iowa State Senate passed the bill last week in a special session held just a couple of weeks after the Iowa Supreme Court failed to revive a 2018 law with similar wording. Planned Parenthood, the Emma Goldman Clinic and others, they filed a lawsuit to try to stop this law from going into effect. During a hearing on Friday, Daniel Johnston, Daniel's the attorney representing the state of Iowa, argued the new law is constitutional. He pointed out the Iowa Supreme Court decided in 2022 that the Iowa Constitution doesn't ensure access to abortion. Well, attorneys for Planned Parenthood asked the judge for an immediate ruling from the bench so the injunction could go into effect immediately to block the abortion restrictions. District Court Joseph Seidlin refused saying ruling from the bench would, without further consideration would be unfair to both sides. Now, with the law in effect, abortions would be banned in Iowa once cardiac activity is detected, which can be as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. Now, the problem is, is that most people don't know they're fucking pregnant at six weeks. There are exceptions. We talked about this in a previous story um, for rape, incest, fetal abnormality, or if the woman's life is at stake. But the problem is with incest and rape, they have to be reported in a certain amount of days. That whole thing is just insanity and it's just such fucking bullshit. So that's one thing that's left out in this version of the story. Yeah, Governor Reynolds released the following statement in the response to the injunction. This is what the governor said. In their own words, the abortion industry stressed, industry, by the way, the abortion industry stressed the need for a temporary injunction so they could continue with 200 scheduled abortions in the next two weeks. While life was protected for a few days, now even more innocent babies will be lost. The abortion industries, I know, they know what words to use. The abortion industry's attempt to thwart the will of Iowans and the voices of their elected representatives continues today. But I will fight this all the way to the Iowa Supreme Court, where we expect a decision that will finally provide justice for the unborn. Let me remind you, by the way, um, the voices of the elected representatives, the Iowans, Across the board in this nation, a majority of people support abortion access. Yep. Now, Rita Bettis Austin, the, she's the legal director for the ACLU of Iowa, released this statement. She said, we are relieved that Iowans will be protected in their ability to seek abortion care for the time being under the order issued today. This order is essential to protecting the bodily autonomy rights and freedom of Iowans, as well as their health and safety, while this unconstitutional and dangerous abortion ban is litigated. 
We know Iowans stand with us in wanting to protect abortion rights and keep politicians out of doctor-patient decision-making. We're also grateful to the court for hearing and deciding this case so quickly as necessitated by the state's unnecessarily cruel emergency effective date provision. Mm. Yes. Yes, indeed. And and it's so funny, the guy who argued, what, what did he say? He was like, this is constitutional because the court decided that the Iowa Constitution doesn't ensure access to abortion. But you dumb piece of shit. This is an argument about the fact that the Iowa Constitution says that no laws can go into effect while they're being appealed. So shut your fucking face. I just... AG's <laughs> <laughs> hey, in it. She's coming in hot, people. I just hate stupid people so much. Or, or, or he knows and he's just obfuscating, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm not a butthole. All right. Um, next, I get to talk to one of the coolest people in the world. He was a, his former DHS chief of staff. And he was the anonymous author of A Warning. And he is the author of the new book, uh, A Warning, by the way, is number one uh, New York Times on the bestseller list. And the new book is called Blowback. And it's out today. You don't want to miss this conversation. Also, if you get a chance to check out his podcast about whistleblowers, definitely check that out too. Everybody, we'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm really excited today. We get to talk to listeners of this show, especially the old show Muller She Wrote, going back to the kitchen table days. We'll know this person as the Lodestar Anonymous author. He also wrote the number one New York Times bestseller, Warning, a warning. And he's got a new book out today called Blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump. He's former chief of staff at DHS under Trump. Please welcome Miles Taylor. Hey, Miles, how are you? Allison, thank you for having me. And for those who are watching on video, I put up, we were talking about this in the green room, this poster that my publisher wants me to carry around. I swear to God, the book is not this big. It's not some giant tome. It's a normal size. So you don't have to purchase this coffee table book size. Well, where's the sandwich board that you must wear when you go out? Yeah, that's true. And and the inflatable wavy arm tube guy that I need to have with me wherever. I don't, I don't know. That didn't show up in the mail. Awesome. I'm so excited to talk to you. The listeners of this program, listeners of me, listeners of AG, going back to when I was anonymous working for the government, we always just referred to you as the Lodestar because you specifically used that word in an article, in an op-ed that you wrote as an anonymous person working in the, in the government. And it, stu- it stood out to us because we were trying to figure out who is it that uses the word Lodestar? That was the, um, so that's the nickname that stuck for us. But going back all the way to then, and then your book, A Warning, and now to this book, Blowback. I can't see it, though. Can you make it bigger <laughs> by chance? <laughs> yeah, there, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Let's start back in the day about yeah. what prompted you to start speaking out. Because this, I've noticed this book, it's actually really, there's a lot of vulnerability in it. There's a lot of self-criticism in it. And I know that a lot of folks, um, not necessarily with your work because you came out early, even though anonymous, but there's a lot of people who are like, oh, great, John Kelly, now you're telling us that, yeah. you know, this and this happened. So talk about what prompted you to to speak out back then and continue to to do so. You know, and, and I I toggle between irreverent and very serious and vulnerable. So bear with me, listeners, because I think we're in just such a we're in such a difficult period. You have to bring levity into these conversations. Um, but yeah, I mean, in some ways, you could view this book as a, a brutal repudiation of Miles Taylor by Miles Taylor, because 
I've come to a really ironic conclusion over the past few years. And, and my life was destroyed by going out against Trump. Everything, everything that I'd wanted to work for in my life. I wanted to be in the national security world, lost the job, lost the home, lost a relationship, lost my family security, life savings, like hit rock bottom and really got to reinvestigate everything. And one of those conclusions I came to is I really think one of the biggest threats to our democracy is anonymity. Yes, ironic coming out of the mouth of anonymous. But let me explain what I mean. First, I will say that's not a knock against anyone who's a whistleblower who chooses to be protected under the law anonymously. You know, the intelligence community whistleblower who led to Trump's first impeachment is still anonymous. And I respect that. And the law affords those people protection for their families and for their jobs. In my case, though, it was clear to me after the fact that what I was trying to do was a different type of whistleblowing beyond specific episodes of misconduct. I was trying to say to voters, do not reelect this man, because what I've seen that he wants to do in a second term that he's been stopped from doing will be devastating to our democracy. But that type of whistleblowing needs a name attached to it. Why? Because once someone attaches their name, it becomes that much easier for the next person to come forward. Mm. And I realized that belatedly. And, and the honest answer, Allison, is I was scared. I was very scared. Once I had anonymously put out that op-ed and said, look, the American people need to know Trump's own cabinet thinks he's unstable. And they've even talked about the 25th Amendment. Once I put that out there, I knew that when I unmasked myself, it would be an avalanche of hate and nothing would ever be the same. And I convinced myself for a year or so, well, I'll do it eventually and I'm going to do it before the election. And I had to confront this. I got in, I left the administration. I got into a super comfy job in the tech sector. I was finally making money for the first time in my life. And then I had to look down the barrel of that decision and say, okay, if I unmask myself, if I come forward against him publicly, I got to give all this up. And Frankly, I didn't want to. And it was a real moral reckoning. And ultimately, as COVID hit and people started dying, it was like, Miles, this is the one time in your life where you face one of those decisions. You come out and own this or you be a coward forever. And I talked myself into it and went out there against him. And it was all the things. It was a moral relief. But most importantly, I realized that it was providing air cover for a whole bunch of my colleagues to come forward. In fact, we ended up being the largest group of ex-officials in American history to turn against a president who had appointed them. And when that started to happen, uh, I had regret. And I never use the word regret. And that regret was, oh my God, I should have done it a year ago. Because I would have had a whole nother year to go out and recruit people and say, you know, look, I'm doing it. The, you know, the water's warm. Come join the club. It's, it's easier. Uh, you know, thankfully, I think that cohort did have an impact. But that's why I say I think the biggest threat to democracy is anonymity, because right now there are so many people in the Republican Party, so many people around Donald Trump who still think he's worse than defective, that he's a mortal danger to our republic. And they're still not saying anything publicly. We need them to do that to prevent him from becoming president again or to prevent a copycat from coming into office. Let's talk about this the cohort because, you know, you bring up a point that I continually bring up over and over again as part of my job and what I do and why I do what I do and, and why I tell my stories and why I aggregate the news through the filter of my lived experiences. It's because I want people to feel like they're not alone. 
I think that's empowering. I think it removes anxiety. It disallows people to gaslight you. I think you're not alone are more important words than I love you. I mean, I think that these are like the three most important words in the English language. So talk a little bit about your cohort and and what you've found, who else is in it. Yeah. Some of the more important kind of, yeah, I guess, lessons that you've learned, like take, go deeper on that, on that lesson. Here's the biggest one. The notion that we went into the Trump administration with, that we could steer the guy the right direction and that a so-called axis of adults could protect the country from a wayward and deranged chief executive was catastrophically wrong. And I hadn't supported Trump. I was not a MAGA person. I was like a Paul Ryan Republican working for him, you know, when he was Speaker of the House and House Republican leadership. And we tried to stop Trump from getting the nomination. Clearly, we failed miserably. And then I didn't want to go to that administration. It was quite obviously disgusting. I tried to get a lot of Republicans to rescind their endorsements on the eve of the election. And, uh, you know, I've got all of these message strings with, you know, current sitting members of Congress in the Republican Party where they're kind of debating back and forth. Do they turn against him? Do they not? And, and most of them, as we know, didn't because they were hedging. They were hoping they would get cabinet appointments. So he wins. I go in. And I was one of the first people to propagate this notion of an axis of adults. It was a term I shared with Kim Dozier at the Daily Beast. And I said, people need to rest assured there's an axis of adults keeping Trump in check. And what we realized is, yeah, through hard experience, that was wrong. In the first year, there was a lot of things we put back in the box. Trump wanting to pull out of NATO, shoot migrants at the border, you name the disgusting policy, we'd say no. And to our delight and surprise, wow, I mean, a lot of terrible shit happened. But the really catastrophic things he walked back from. But in year two, as things like family separation happened and Trump denying the Russians were trying to interfere again in 2018, you can just go down the list. It was clear that we were wrong. And that's one of the things that I first learned about my cohort was actually deep disappointment with that so-called axis of adults, because a lot of them shared these dire views of the president, but didn't want to talk about it. And I, after I quit the administration in protest, what I found was the people who were willing to come forward weren't the cabinet secretaries, weren't the household names. They were the nobodies like me. They were people who were serving in senior jobs close to power, but people didn't know our names. But a lot of my peers had everything to lose, you know, as you and I were talking about, Alex, and I mean, you blew the whistle similarly as a mid-career executive who only had the future in front of you and, and a lot to lose by doing that. That, though, at the same time, was pretty fucking inspiring to me, is seeing colleagues of mine who I knew had young children, had careers and futures, and knew that by coming out against this guy, they were going to get rocked. And probably by the biggest bully we've ever seen in the history of the world, in terms of, you know, a bully is only as effective as their mouthpiece. And even more than an Adolf Hitler, you could say that Donald Trump's mouthpiece today through social media is so much more powerful. They knew they were going to get rocked by that bully and they did it anyway. Um, but it's also, I think, a mark of shame on those people who were at the end of their careers and could have said more. But I will caveat that with there's still an opportunity. I mean, some of these people, I still try to urge to come forward and try to have an effect to stop this guy, because I do think it works. Does it persuade the MAGA masses to defect? It doesn't. But when 
a big name comes out and breaks from the MAGA tribe or the Republican tribe, what it does is give air cover to concerned conservatives who are more towards the middle to say, you know what? Yeah, I'll withhold my vote this time. Or maybe I'll even vote for a Democrat just this once. Those marginal votes, even just a few thousand of them, can flip a whole state in a presidential election. So we really need that this next go around again. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the election because it doesn't seem Chris Christie seems to be the only Republican on the ticket who is speaking out forcefully against Donald Trump. I find that fascinating, although I guess I'd never really expected much bravery from a Mike Pence. He always kind of seemed like a sort of a sycophant um you know, kind of slave to the fly, you know, sort of, I don't know what's, what's, what's going on with him. But I mean, he, in my mind, Donald Trump tried to have him assassinated. Yeah. I don't understand why. And his family put his family in danger, physical danger. He's down in the loading dock discussing the 25th amendment. I guess we still aren't really sure about the discussions that went on there. I still have no idea how Pence was able to call out the national guard as the vice president, I, I, I'm still trying to figure out if there was some sort of a document he had to sign. I know the government, like I've worked for the government for a long time. You can't just go around the 25th Amendment. There has to have been some sort of a mechanism for him to be able to do that. But I just don't understand why he, Nikki Haley, anybody, any of the, I should say, larger Republicans on the ticket. DeSantis is kind of a little bit, but I mean, that guy's campaign is toast. So what's going on there? I mean, where's the Liz Cheney's, you know? Well, you know, I say in blowback that Mike Pence was the type of person who has an erect posture and a flaccid conscience. In other words, he always stood tall behind Donald Trump, but he never stood up to him. And I was in a lot of meetings with Pence and Trump, and never once did I see Mike Pence condemn him or argue against a policy. And we're talking about meetings where Trump would sit in the room and say that innocent migrants were all rapists and murderers and perverts, and that Mexico was a hellhole. And he would just, you know, just all the awful things you could think of. And there would be other people in that room. I mean, my former boss, John Kelly, love or hate John Kelly, I still adore the man. He would every single time push back against an immoral, unethical idea. I mean, the country actually still doesn't know the full extent of the grenades John Kelly jumped on. And he knew he was going to destroy his reputation by working for this guy. And I just think he's one of the most. Well, we should know. We we should know. I mean, I I think he should be talking a lot. I mean, we just found out in a court filing. It it was it took a court filing for us to learn that he heard that Pete Strzok and Lisa Page were going to be targeted by the IRS. So, well, look, I'd love to see the chief out there more and more. I totally, you know, I, I agree. I'd love to see him out there more and more, but, you know, you know, going back to your, your question about these folks in the Republican primaries, ultimately, this is what it comes down to. And, you know, people like you and me have had this conversation and, I'll, and I'll probably most of your listeners a million times with so many family members and friends, which is the why, why are these people still so scared to speak out? And for the longest time, I thought it was fear of reprisal because they had seen how how rocked people like me got. They'd seen how, you know, Donald Trump attacks people and ruins their lives. And so I thought it must be fear and for their family's safety, because so many members of Congress I talked to, like Liz Cheney and Denver Riggleman and others, you know, had to arm their families as they started to get death threats for opposing the tribe. But then I put this question to Adam Kinzinger while he was still in Congress. I said, Adam, What's your take? 
Is it fear for their families? And he told me something really surprising. I talk about the exchange in this book. Adam said, no, there's something deeper than that, Miles. There's something deeper. He said, more so than fearing for their lives or the safety of their families, they are more scared to get kicked out of the tribe than they are of death. And that really resonated with me because the tribe, the GOP tribe, for a lot of these people, it's their whole life. It's their whole career. And it actually made me think of a joke that Jerry Seinfeld used to tell is 30 years ago, Seinfeld used to open up sets by saying a poll came out. And this was true, that a poll came out and it showed that of all the fears that Americans have, their number one fear is public speaking. Their number two fear is death. So most Americans would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. And the point is eerily resonant with what we're seeing with Republicans today. They would rather be dead or caught dead than speaking out in this moment because they know it means getting booted from the tribe and the tribe is everything to them. And right now, Donald Trump is still the leader of that tribe. And even if they're running against him for the presidency, they're still scared to speak out against him. And that, I think, is just a damning indictment of our current political class in this country, especially on the right, obviously. I mean, especially given the shrinking number of, of MAGA Trump supporters. I mean, yes, he had quite a few votes uh, in the last election. Not enough, obviously, to win. But, you know, a lot of that is just there's an R next to his name. He's not Joe Biden. So, you know, I've seen this repeatedly from from the tribe, right, is the the rigged polls, you know, giving Cohen $10,000 and a signed autographed boxing glove and a Walmart bag to rig some polls, you know, mm-hmm. it's lying about your crowd size, always talking about how, how can somebody who has small rallies possibly win elections, talking about, you know, faking and photoshopping his, his crowd sizes at his rallies, all to make everyone think that the tribe is bigger than it is. And so I, I wonder how much that also plays a role in in the the tribal nature of of the fear of speaking out but that that kind of that kind of blows my mind that uh that Kinzinger said that and I'm glad that you address it in the book talk a little bit about I mean something that really really stands out to me is the, the like I said in the beginning when we first started talking the vulnerability I mean, talk about some of the things that you had gone through. I know I've talked to Pete Strzok about this. I've talked to Annie McCabe about this on on the shows that we do. But I'm really interested, and a a lot of this book has that in there. I really encourage everybody to get it, to talk a little bit about that that kind of, that vulnerability that you you, uh, experienced. Well, it wasn't wasn't planned. Uh, This book originally was just going to be about the dangers of a second Trump term or a copycat. So I spent two years interviewing dozens of people who'd served at the White House, around Trump, his confidants, senior members of Congress to just say, what will the second term look like? Rather than Miles painting the picture, you paint the picture, you ran those agencies, tell me what a second term would look like. And that's all still in there. And and it was actually vastly scarier than I think I could have just even written is what people predicted would happen across departments and agencies. But in the course of writing this story about what would happen if we dismantled democracy's guardrails? In that process, I mean, I was going through pretty deep therapy uh, and dealing with my life imploding at the time. And the, to me, there was another story in there, which was, 
you know, a personal story of this is what happens when you disregard your own internal guardrails. It leads to self-destruction. And in the course of juggling these two identities, me and this anonymous character, it created really a pressure cooker in my mind and beyond what I anticipated. I mean, the idea of anonymous became this, to some people, it was this secret superhero, this resistance figure in the administration who was going to take down Trump from within. And to other people was this horrible villain, this you know treasonous person who was trying to thwart a commander in chief's lawful orders. And I didn't think I was either of those. And that pressure and, and, and the decision to come forward or not really led me to start coping in all the wrong ways. And, and all the stupid tropes you see people fall into that you think that will never be me. Uh, and then it was me. I mean, if you saw me on television in the fall of 2020 campaigning against Trump, there's a good chance that I'd been drinking beforehand to calm my nerves. There's a chance that I'd been drinking and I'd popped a Xanax. Uh, you know, there's a chance that I was drunk. And as time went on, it got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, I wound up in the hospital one morning after an overdose mm. and was just struck with this stupid irony. Here I am going out there trying to sound the alarm and say, this guy is reckless and you can't trust him with our democracy. And I couldn't even trust myself with my own life. I was being that reckless. I was very depressed after that. I mean, even once I unmasked myself, you know, it's enough to lose a relationship or a home or a job or blah, blah, blah. But all those things at once put me into a kind of a tailspin. And I spent, uh, you know, I went on antidepressants. I went into therapy and really started to grapple with that. But um, it showed me that there was a, you know, I think a bigger, a bigger narrative at play, which is that that theme that you brought up at the beginning that idea of anonymity, of suppressing what we know to be the truth, can be highly self-destructive. It was in my personal life, but extrapolate that out to the macro. When millions and millions of people know the truth about some civic wrong or a dangerous person and suppress it, it's going to have really bad unintended consequences. And that's what I think we're witnessing now. I mean, the barbecues we go to and the dinners with family and friends, like, you know, a lot of those people kind of know the truth about the corrosive rot that's happening on the political right in this country, but they don't want to say it because they don't want to offend the tribe. That's going to put us in a pretty dangerous place. So it may be, you know, too on the nose to say this, Allison, but, you know, I was at the point uh, some years ago of suicidal ideation. And I'm very happy to say I'm 18 months sober and met the love of my life. And I'm very lucky for it. In a broader sense, though, I think we are on the cusp of what I would call like civic suicidal ideation. As a country, the fact that we are flirting with the possibility of putting another pseudo authoritarian back into office is tantamount to just destroying our democracy. And we have to look at it with that level of seriousness. I always say, if you told me I was saying this seven years ago, I'd say, man, Miles went off the rails. He's a radical now. But these aren't even radical notions anymore. I mean, the, the dozens of people I interviewed for this book, lifetime intelligence officers, national security officials, lifetime lawyers and government civil servants, all are speaking in this language of America maybe will survive or won't based on these decisions we make in the next few years. Yeah, I've often compared our situation civically to a battered spouse yeah. and the trauma. 
which I also personally went through while Donald Trump was in office. So there was a lot of that sort of duality like that you talk about specifically and trying to cope and manage that. And and again, not maintaining the guardrails of yourself while you're trying to hold together the guardrails of democracy. So it's a very fascinating parallel story. Well, you know, Allison, there's someone, I don't want to name her in the pod. I mean, they're named in the book, but someone, a senior female leader in the administration who was dealing with Trump, who said something one day, who said, this is far and away the most abusive relationship I've ever been in. Mm-hmm. And they were an employee of Donald Trump. And that's just how sick it became to work in his orbit is it felt highly emotionally abusive. Now, people are going to say, well, I don't have any sympathy for you. Why the fuck did you work for the man? That's its own very fair conversation. Uh, But a person that's described that way shouldn't be the leader of the free world. Well, a lot of people ask a, a, a person in an abusive relationship why they don't leave. And there's a we could have hour long conversations about that as well. It's not yeah. as simple as it all seems. And the fact that we're flirting with it again is a telltale sign of that specific kind of abusive relationship civically. I mean, it's 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 really fascinating to talk about if you've read or if you know, I I know a lot of people who listen have read Reckoning uh, by Mary Trump. It deals with a lot of those uh, issues as our mental health as a as a nation. Yeah. After after Trump. Uh, One last thing I want to ask you is about your thoughts now on the potential accountability for the former president. We, we've seen indictments in the documents case. We're expecting, I'm expecting indictments for January 6th, certainly from Georgia, possibly from the Department of Justice. Does that sort of accountability really help thwart specifically him or people like him? Or do you think it's, uh, I mean, justice, obviously, and accountability are necessary and important but I was wondering about your thoughts on on accountability for for this administration, for this person. I, I'm really worried. I do think the polarization of the American public towards the justice system has really it's put a massive dent in the prospects for accountability. And more to the point, even if Trump's convicted and goes to jail, there'll be tens of millions of people across this country that don't accept the result. And that's because of a concerted effort in the Republican Party to demean every aspect of the justice system. That's one of the guardrails. Right, because that's kind of my one of my big concerns is that even yeah. we indict him, we put him in jail, there's still going to be election deniers. That's their new gig now. There will always be another, but I'm, it's still necessary. But like, I mean, how do we even reckon with that? Well, I mean, I'm going to say something. I don't think I've ever heard anyone else say this. I believe that the Donald Trump administration is a graveyard of potentially impeachable offenses, and we still don't know where all the bodies were buried. I guarantee you, in this century, we'll have historians a few decades from now when all the records get declassified and they can they can trawl through it. They're going to find things that should have been impeachable offenses that we didn't even talk about at wide scale at this point. You know, I'm privy to a few of those where I think the bodies are buried, and I've tried to flag where those are for investigators or others. But I think it's so much worse than that. The worry, of course, is that, you know, we'll get to that point and have such a polarized society that people and, you know, people perceive that there's two tiers of justice in this country, which I don't believe to be the case. I think all of the investigations of Donald Trump have been done really by the book and the inspector generals that have reviewed them and the committees that have reviewed them really haven't shown any other outcome. I mean, Trump himself 
thought that the Russia witch hunt, so-called witch hunt, you know, we would find out from the investigation into that by another special counsel would be faulty. And, you know, that that committee hearing that they had a few weeks ago proved to be anything but that. That's not the conclusion that the special counsel found. He didn't find that the Russia investigation uh, was totally, you know, he found that there were errors, just like any investigation, but that its underpinnings uh, were legitimate. There was a legitimate investigation to be made. But, you know, that guardrail of our democracy, I think, is severely corroded. And the people that I spoke to for blowback really sounded the alarm there in saying that in a second term, that they already have plans to appoint an array of special counsels to go after Trump's enemies. I mean, one former Justice Department lawyer under Trump used these words. He said, the watchwords of the Justice Department will be, quote, sue the blue. In other words, use every resource of DOJ to sue Democratic cities, Democratic policymakers, Democratic organizations to weaponize that department to take out the political opposition and then to gut the FBI and fill it with people who will submit to that agenda. This is banana republic stuff. I mean, this is stuff that you cannot imagine occurring in the United States. And I thought as people were telling me this for the book, I can't put I can't put some of those things in there because people won't believe it. And then Trump himself two months ago comes out and says, I am your retribution. And he makes clear that the theme of his reelection will be revenge. And as he always does, he said the quiet part out loud. He's made clear he intends to weaponize every aspect of the government to go against the political opposition. And so he's only validated the things that are in this book. I mean, when intelligence officials told me they felt like in a second term, he would use America's spy powers to spy on political enemies. I thought, God, again, people aren't going to believe this. But, you know, now we've had stories out there about how, yes, Trump did want to wiretap his own staff. Yes, he did try to hijack the intel community. So those are the things that we have to worry about if we make this catastrophic mistake of considering him for a second term uh, in the presidency. Or again, I say a MAGA copycat because I think the party really has been corrupted towards the MAGA side and it'll take a generation to turn the tide. Yes, it's frightening, exceedingly frightening stuff, uh, but also very necessary to understand where we stand, where we've been and where we're going. Incredible book. It's called Blowback. It's available wherever you get your books now. Subtitle, A Warning to Save uh, can I read your poster? It's too small. Oh, yeah. Warming to save democracy from the next Trump. <laughs> yeah. Get the coffee table version. That doesn't actually exist. But if it did, it would be this big. <laughs> get it that big. Anyway, you get it wherever you get your books. I really, really appreciate your time today. It's been fascinating talking to you. I hope you'll come back on soon. Yeah, of course, Allison. And thanks for what you do. I mean, you've been a, an enormous pro-democracy mouthpiece. We're, we're really grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, you want to play what the what the heck wine, shout out to a loved one, shout out to yourself. Um, shout out to a local business in your area, an adoptable pet in your area. If you don't have pod pet tax, you can send us that. Whoopie stories, love those. Um, anything you want, you can send it to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. I love frog orgies and uh, Dana loves baby pictures. I love baby pictures. <laughs> I don't know why. Of any kind, by the way, they could be human babies, animal babies. I mean, I, I've never like... <sighs> 
I, I, Did you I say mean, I don't know why you love baby fro- pictures? No, I'm talking about my frog orgies thing. Like, yeah, how did that I don't even remember start? How that came in. <laughs> like, I don't love them that much. I mean, I love, they're great. Um, could you imagine if people really thought that you were obsessed with frog orgies? <laughs> like, how did that even start? It's just the thing I say now. Oh, I love those frog orgies. Send them in. I imagine we you, we mixed up words. Like, you know what I mean? I, I have a feeling that there was some sort of a word mix up and we were like frog orgies and people were like, yes, I'll send those in. <laughs> don't know. I don't know. But it, I guess it's that's what... I'm glad that, we didn't mix up baby orgies. That would have been a whole yeah, different that's podcast. That's a whole bad thing. Um, but yeah frog orgies um uh, i actually really like piles of kittens so you can send those in uh um, i love piles of kittens yeah i love it's something we kittens. can both agree on by the way so you can send in posts for both of us excellent so i'll i'm the frog orgies you're the baby pictures and i don't hate baby pictures I just, and then you know. piles of puppies and kittens that's what we're yeah. requesting please and thank you yes absolutely anyway interesting interesting stuff first up from anonymous pronoun she and her hi ag and dg i'm a high school teacher thank you very much anonymous and a parent of two awesome teens my good news is that the kids are all right despite being in a conservative suburb in a red state gen z is beautiful Yes. They're per- perplexed why old people care about what pronouns or bathrooms people used. It's as bizarre to them as people dressing up on airplanes or making their beds <laughs> or using Microsoft Word. There's just so much less judgmentalness there than previous generations, except about Word. Lots of judgment there. <laughs> I'm so proud of them and looking forward to the future Gen Z leaders. My pet tax is my son's ferret named Bean. My yes. son and Bean listen to the pod sometimes and both enjoy the Trump snark. Look at I Bean. think ferrets are adorable Aren't as long as they've so had cute? their stinker removed. Aren't they so cute? They are. All right. Thank you very much for kicking us off with that. This next one's from Evie, pronouns she and her. Hey, Beans, Queens. Thank you for sharing my submission about our fourth of gaily in I Iowa. Think it's, I think it's gay lie. I want it to be gaily. Okay. Okay. Gayli, I think you're right. Fine. Gayli, as in like gala, but gayla in Iowa. It gave me some street cred with my kids. You are welcome, Abby. Now, sadly, as you have reported, though, Iowa just passed a six week abortion ban. But Evie, as we covered today, it's blocked temporarily. I don't recognize the state I grew up in anymore. We are 51st in the nation behind Puerto Rico for OBGYNs per capita, and we're losing more by the day. It's extremely sad and frustrating. So for Halloween, we will be hosting trick or reproductive rights (laughs) instead of trick or treat themes and costumes to be developed. But I will be clear that we support a woman's right to choose. I think on my last message, I promised pet tags of my Corgi Bernadette, but I forgot to post a picture. Here's one of her waiting for trick or treaters last year and one of her sweet face. Thank you for all you do. Hello, Bernadette. Bernadette is cute. I also love when people name dogs human names and they look at the puppy and they're like, Bernadette. I love the name Bernadette. I think I said that last time. Isn't that cute? Uh, Evie wrote in, but what a beautiful baby. This next one's for you, Angie. Corgi butts are the best. Oh my gosh, look at that. Yes, it is. It is for me from Jill. No pronouns given. Hi, Dr. Gill and Dana, queens of the beans. I think this qualifies as a frog orgy. I got this postcard as a thank you from an independent artist I supported. If you're into cryptid art, tokuarts.com is epic. Here are some things I bought. You rock. These are stickers and enamel pins of Cthulhu, a chupacabra, Bigfoot, and a jackalope. (laughs) That's awesome. That is really cool. (laughs) 
Thank you for supporting Toku Arts. So good. Good. It's real and Bigfoot looks cute. He's like, don't look at my big feet. These are great. Toku Arts. Check them out. All right. This is from John. I read the I read the submission previously, so I hope people pay attention to this. Meaning, I I pre-read it before we're recording. John pronounced he and him. I wanted to share about an ongoing attack on trans women in the sport of disc golf. The PDGA mm-hmm. updated the rules at the end of last year to be significantly more restrictive than the International Olympic Committee's recommendation. For instance, they require a trans woman. Now, I want you to hear this. They require a trans woman to transition before twelve. Hmm. And meanwhile, these fuckers are arguing that you shouldn't be able to give trans health care to any to a minor. Like, I can't with these fucking people. You can't have it both ways. OK, sorry about that, John. I didn't mean to take over. This was done only at the top level of play, by the way, and was put in place to keep one athlete, one athlete from competing. This rule is clearly a violation of multiple state anti-discrimination laws, and the PDGA has lost multiple court cases. In order to not pay for more litigation, the PDGA announced on Friday that they're pulling all tournaments out of any states with anti-discrimination laws, discriminatory laws. So instead of changing their rule, they're pulling... Yeah, last week, uh, Belize and Costa Rica, they pulled out of the PDGA due to issues related to their stance against transgender athletes. I'm asking disc golf lovers to reach out to the PDGA and let your voice be heard. It's unacceptable. Should they stay on the course they are on, I will support new leagues that are trying to rise up and provide safe and inclusive tournaments. My daughter is seven and loves playing the sport already. It's important for me that there is a spot for her should she choose to play competitively in the future. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that about the PDGA. I do have some friends, so I'll write a letter. Thanks, John, for letting, for letting us yeah. know. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that to light. Yeah, really. Um, Susan, pronounced she and her. Good news. This is not about a frog orgy, exactly. But it's about how you can get a particular type of frog to eject a bunch of eggs. According to the Atlantic article, link below in the show notes, this article, how frogs become a part of a pregnancy test. It turns out they used to inject frogs with urine from people they thought might be pregnant. And if they were, the frog would eject eggs. Weird, right? Mary. Also, maybe sexy if you're a frog. <laughs> Hat tip to Caroline Criado Perez from The Invisible Woman for writing about this amazing procedure. Here it is. The hog bend test was simple. Collect a woman's urine, inject it, fresh and untreated, under the skin of a female xenopus. Then wait. If the woman Sorry. Is <laughs> I didn't mean to giggle. <laughs> <laughs> if the woman is pregnant, between 5 and 12 hours later, the frog will produce a bunch of eggs. Millimeter-sized black and white spheres. The results were reliable. One researcher reported that after injecting 150 frogs, he never got any false positives and only missed three actual pregnancies. And as one doctor wrote to Hogben's colleagues, quote, thank you for your report on the pregnancy test on Mrs. X. You may be interested to know that one of the GP of many years' standing, one specialist gynecologist and one frog, only the frog was correct. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, that, oh only that's the so xenopus. Yeah, the xenopus. That's, that's, I've got to Google that kind of frog. I think you do. All right. This last one is from James. I think this is the last one. Yeah, this is from James. Pronounce he and him. Hello, Beans Queens. I love you too and the community you've introduced me to. I have a misheard lyric to share. About a year ago, I was listening to Africa by Toto with my 23-year-old daughter, and we were singing along together. In the middle of the song, she looks at me and says, 
what did you just say? I said, there's nothing that a hundred men on Mars could ever do. (laughs) And my daughter started cracking up and she had to pull the lyrics up for me. I guess there's nothing that a hundred men or more could ever do. does make a lot more sense. I have to admit though, I still sing in the same way I've always done it since it's more fun to think of a hundred men on Mars trying to drag him away from her, regardless of how ridiculous it is. (laughs) How far away it is from Africa. (laughs) Yeah. There's nothing that a hundred men on Mars could ever ever do. Yeah. uh, Does the, I wonder, James, if you enjoy the Weezer cover of Africa. It's very good. You haven't heard it. Um, Thank you so much for sending in your good news. And big thanks to Miles Taylor. That was a really great conversation. I I feel like I have a new friend and uh, you really need to check out his podcast and grab his book. It's called Blowback. It's really, really good. Very personal. And uh, I think you'll, I think you'll really, really love it. It's I did. So, and I can't say enough nice things about it or him. So we will be back in your ears tomorrow. Um, Dana, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here? I do. I'm going to give a shout out to my show in Rochester, New York, a week from Friday, July 28th. Tickets are almost gone. So if you're holding up on this and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to go, go tell, tell a friend. I've I've gotten a couple emails from people about meet and greet and listen, the tickets are only $25. I think they're 26 and change with the the fee. It's a small room. So I'm going to meet and greet with whoever buys a ticket and wants to say hi to me, no extra charge. So Nick and Dana, and the people that have written in from the Beans already gotten tickets. I want other people to join them in the audience. I would love to have a Beans contingency. Go to my website, danagoldberg.com, hit appearances. It is the first one on there. And so you'll get to the Carlson comedy link and buy tickets. And then uh, hopefully I'll be making you laugh for about an hour and, and we'll chuckle and make fun of some, you know, people that are pretty deplorable. And then I'll tell you jokes about sex and love and families and all kinds of other things. Mm, and politics. You're so funny, Dana. Seriously. And politics. If you Thank haven't you. seen Dana live, it's it's seriously a really, really good show. It's something that you need to do. Put it on your bucket list and get there. Rochester, New York. Uh, I know everyone's going to have a wonderful time and I'm so glad some of the Beans listeners are going to be there. Me too. All right. We will be back in your ears tomorrow with whatever news they throw at us. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. Take everyone you know with you. Everyone. Take someone, even just one person, but everybody if you can, especially in Ohio on August 8th. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I 
want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler. How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.